This show is made possible by members and donors who sign up at bestoftheleft.com and also by gotomeeting.com green technology helping reduce the need for business travel. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Tom Hartman Program, The Bugle, Jim Hightower, The Daily Show, On the Media, The Liberal Oasis Radio Show, The Progressive, and The Rachel Maddow Show with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show. Your first quote is someone greeting a distinguished visitor to India this week. Welcome. As a fellow Kenyan, I'm very proud to see that you have made it. What person who actually is not a Kenyan, really, despite what you've heard, got a hero's welcome in India and across Asia this week? That would be President Obama. Yes, indeed. Some countries are always going to criticize and mock the American president no matter what he does. That's why he left one of them and went to Asia this week. <laughs> sure enough, uh, President Obama was received by jubilant crowds in his first stop, India. Indians love him, not least because, unlike his predecessor, he does not insist on calling them Native Americans. <laughs> they didn't like that. The trip was originally supposed to be a diplomatic initiative, but after the midterm disaster, the White House rebranded it as a jobs creation trip. Even that, this is true, but even that wasn't polling well. So now it's actually being called by the White House a surprise invasion of East Asia. <laughs> President's numbers shot up. President Obama was there to increase exports to Asia. For example, in India... He showed them all a special Hindu version of the Snuggie. It has six armholes. Oh. <laughs> there you are. Very sensitive to their cultural needs. He also visited a customer support call center. You know, they've got a lot of those there that do like customer support. He said, this country is a mess. How do I fix it? They suggested unplugging America, wait 10 seconds, then plug it back in. <laughs> share with you the first paragraph from Emily Wax's column in the Sunday Washington Post. Dateline Bangalore, India. She's there on the trip with the president. In the futuristic lab on a leafy information technology campus, an inventor showed off a power strip that calculates a household's carbon emissions for, for the environmentally conscious U.S. market. In a research center nearby, rocket scientists worked on designs for lighter, more aerodynamic wings for Boeing fighter jets. The engineers at Infosys Technology, India's second largest technology company, are on the cutting edge of the country's $60 billion IT industry. That's as in B, billion with a B. She uh, quotes, who is she quoting here? 
Partha Iyengar, head of the research for Gartner India, a U.S.-based global IT research organization. Quote, the center of gravity has shifted with cars moving to Japan, low-cost manufacturing moving to China, and knowledge-intensive work coming to India. Yeah. Which brings us back to Honeywell. What I thought used to be an American company, David Coate, chairman and chief executive of Honeywell, said the American public's perception that companies send jobs overseas only to take advantage of labor costs is misplaced. The reason he operates in India, he's got 11,000 employees in India. Honeywell does. He says it's because, quote, superior engineering, end quote, is done in India. The CEO of Honeywell says he's got to have 11,000 people working in India for the U.S. market. among others, because their engineering is superior to ours. Uh, this is pretty strange. The article in the Wall Street, in the, uh, the Washington Post, India's outsourcing industry was shaken last year when Obama said he wanted to change a tax code that says you should pay lower taxes if you create a job in Bangalore, India, than if you create one in Buffalo, New York. Well, that's how it is right now. If you if if Honeywell sends its jobs to India, they pay lower taxes than if they do in the United States. Plus, they pay lower wages. So what's his response? The U.S. is pushing India to allow American universities to set up in Mumbai, Delhi, and other cities. All right. Harvard University, Mumbai campus. So they don't even have to come here and pay tuition. You get the feeling we're becoming a third world country? Or that we already are? Ariana Huffington's presciently titled book. 19 iconic products they don't make here anymore in America. CNN. Pontiac. Miller. Coors. Budweiser. Well, they may make some of that stuff, but it's all owned by foreign companies. The stuff that they don't actually make here anymore. Rawlings Baseballs. St. Louis shop founded in 1887 by George and Alfred Rawlings. We now make the baseballs in Costa Rica. Gerber Baby Food. 80% of the baby food market in the United States. Gerber was bought out by, uh, it was originally the Fremont Canning Company. I, had, I, I have family and friends who used to work at Gerber. In Fremont. My father's from New Wego, which is just, you know, down the road. Michigan, central Michigan. It's up near Grand Rapids. In 1994, they were bought out by Novartis, Swiss pharmaceutical company. And in 2007, bought by, by Nestle. And ever since the, but ever since 1994, when they merged with Novartis, all the Gerber products are manufactured overseas. None of that baby food you buy in the store is made here in the United States if it says Gerber on it. None of it. Zero. Etch-a-Sketch. The company was called Ohio Art because they made them in a little town of 8,000 people, Bryan, Ohio, until 2000. Now they make them in Shenzhen, China. Uh, Mattel Toys, last manufactured date in the United States, 2002. As of August 2007, 65% of their products are made in China. Minivans. We don't make any minivans in the United States. They're made in Canada. We import the chassis. Vending machines. The last vending machine made in the United States, 2003. 
Levi jeans, 2003, last time they were made. 150 years in the United States. Red Radio Flyers Red Wagon. You know a little red wagon? Last time they were made in the United States, 2004. They're now made in China. Televisions. The last U.S. manufactured television was October 2004. Cell phones. The last cell phone made in the United States, 2007. Railroads. Now, I mean, really, railroads. From U69 guard bars to LV braces and weld kits to magnesium turnout casings. Railroads. The last time we made a railroad in the United States, 2008. Dell Computers. They stopped making in January 2010. Closed the North Carolina factory. Canned sardines. Pontiac cars. Forks, knives, and spoons. Last time we made tableware in the United States. Cutlery. June of 2010. Incandescent light bulbs. We don't make light bulbs here. We don't make anything here anymore. Except military hardware. We got lots of that. And his bills are already paid No need to scrimp, no need to save If you're like most Americans, you dream of selling all your possessions and moving to a self-sufficient off-the-grid farm in South Dakota, all while maintaining your corporate job to pay for your continued satellite TV and internet subscriptions. Well, now with GoToMeeting, you can totally disconnect from the rigors of modern life while staying completely connected. Through the use of screen sharing and conference calling through the computer or by phone, you'll be able to meet, collaborate, and present just as though you hadn't just renounced the concept of material possessions. Visit GoToMeeting.com and use the promo code PODCAST to start your one and a half full moon cycle free trial. That's GoToMeeting.com promo code PODCAST to start your free trial of more than three fortnights. Of all the things you'd want the President of the United States to tackle right after November's congressional elections, how high on your list of priorities would you put the task of selling weapons to India? It seems that even the fall tilling of Michelle Obama's White House garden would be a more worthy presidential pursuit than peddling military hardware. November's elections didn't go all that well for Obama, and he has a giant to-do list to go through if he's to convince America's workaday majority that he's really working for them. Yet, the weekend after the election, his first move was to fly 8,000 miles away to try to convince the Indian government to buy $5 billion worth of military hardware from Boeing and a mess of other weaponry from Lockheed Martin and other U.S. arms dealers. Screwy priorities aside, however, why the hell is the President of the United States of America playing Willie Loman for corporate arms hawkers? Yeah, I know they claim that the selling of killing machines creates jobs, but is war and death the only product America has to hawk to the world these days? Besides, India requires that a third of the work on the planes, missiles, and other armaments it buys be farmed out to its manufacturers, creating jobs there, not here. One other dicey point. India is stockpiling weaponry as part of its ever-escalating confrontation with its neighbor and bitter rival, Pakistan, a U.S. ally that our arms dealers also supply. How long before American soldiers get caught in this deadly crossfire of U.S.-made weapons? This is Jim Hightower saying, pretensions aside, Obama's trip to India is not about jobs, but about fattening the bottom line of war profiteers. The arms trade is immoral. It fuels perpetual war, and the President of the United States ought not be its traveling salesman.
story this week, White House Tour 2010, Asia Dates. Andy, after having his arse handed to him in the midterm elections, President Obama was faced with a choice. Did he stand and fight like a man? Or did he run off on a long-scheduled, very important tour of India, <laughs> Indonesia, South Korea and Japan like a president? Well, obviously it was option number two, the coward. The results of the midterm elections have made it very clear that the American people wanted Obama to focus on American jobs. And so that is what he was going to do, Andy. Even if he was 8,000 miles away, he was going to focus on some 8,000 mile away American jobs. Even before he left, he... He wanted to make it painfully clear what the purpose of this trip was going to be. Uh, he held a press conference and said, I want to be able to say to the American people when they ask me, why are you spending time in India? Aren't they taking our jobs? I want to be able to say, actually, you know what? And then there was what felt like a long <laughs> pause. And it was as if the president was considering saying, you know what? F*** you. <laughs> this job is actually really f difficult. This trip is extremely important in ways that I'm not even going to bother you with now, but which will probably have a very direct impact on your everyday lives. It's going to be extremely hard work, but I don't mind that because I'm the f***ing president. What I'm not going to be doing is taking souvenir photos where I'm acting like I'm holding up or I'm about to eat the Taj Mahal like you would if you were here, you f***ing morons. But instead, instead, Andy, he took that pause and he said, Actually, you know what? They just created 50,000 jobs. Now, did he do the right thing not listening to his instincts? <laughs> Only history can say. All I can say is that the second version was a lot less memorable and it seemed to be a lot less fun for him to say. <laughs> his face does have that slight look about it at the moment, um, particularly in that press conference he did after the, uh, the election results. Very much his face says, I can't believe I've got two more years of this bullshit. Yes. There's sort of that face that says, oh, I already didn't like Republicans, and yep. now I've got even more of the obstructive little dickbags <laughs> clogging up the place. <laughs> he sort of looked like a Michelin-starred chef told that all he can use is a Breville machine. <laughs> now, as international relations dictates, the President was not going to get India to insource thousands of jobs <laughs> without giving them a little geopolitical sugar. And so he made what was a fairly major, albeit eventually inevitable policy shift by calling for India to be made a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, something which Jake Tapper here on ABC News referred to as a huge development in the world of international politics and one virulently opposed by India's nemesis, Pakistan. <laughs> nemesis? <laughs> ne ne is Pakistan permanently wearing a cape now, Andy? <laughs> Is there a massive mask covering most of Waziristan? <laughs> These are nation states, not Batman and the Penguin. <laughs> and by so the way, much easier to think of them as that, though. Yeah. And by the way, America is sending that nemesis billions of dollars a year in no strings attached aid to supposedly fight terrorism on their western border. So they had better not be spending all of that on hairless cats, swivel chairs, <laughs> and gigantic piranha tanks. But it's, of course, as you say, a very important uh, trip for. Uh uh, Obama, John, Asia really is uh, where it's all happening. We've all heard of it. We've all dreamt of being it. Uh, we've all <laughs> wondered what it would be like if it was yeah. in the southern hemisphere instead of the north. And yeah. we've all tried to sell it on eBay. Right. But what do we actually know about Asia, about this big old continent that looks all set to land the continent of the Millennium Awards this millennium for the first time in five attempts? 
Uh, what is there to say about Asia? Ch- uh, I know what you're thinking. Uh, do you praise it? Japan it? Oh, no. Oh, it's all a bit oh, up no. in the air. Um, we've all got a view on it, even animals. Uh, even my dog has an opinion on it, and, uh, and it. my cow. Stop talking. Uh, we'd be loused without it. Uh, my friend went on a backpacking holiday around Stop Siberia last window, actually, and uh, when he arrived at his camp, oh dear, uh, <sighs> he didn't pack his tanning lotion. Ah! <laughs> so it's not looking good for his who's obviously been in the Sunmore competition with his mate Zachariah. Kazakhstan is better. Kazakhstan is. Kazakhstan is oh. better. Sorry, I'm, I'm not feeling too good today, John. I'm suffering from some kind of malaise, yeah? Uh, funny feeling in my limbs, in my hand, my wrist. Half, uh. half an hour my legs, Indonesia. Uh, even sometimes right down to my feet. <laughs> right down to my feet. Nah, I'm okay. Uh, feet, feet. That's, that is unforgivable. That so, last one was sorry. absolutely unforgivable. Uh, that was a real bummer. <laughs> well, hey, John, uh, you'll ever guess who's back. It's Dan. Yep. Our old Dan, our old buddy Dan, but back down in London for a couple of days. Uh, I saw him in the pub last night. He spent some time in Texas and started drinking a bit. So he comes up to me, does, and he says, Audi, uh, a beer? Saudi, uh, a... Uh, anyway, he, dr- he drank a bit too much, started getting a bit aggressive, uh, and he insulted me, so I left, and I said, I've gone, it's... Oh. <laughs> and he said, I've gone, it's time, it ain't big enough for the two of us. Ah, uh, you, know, you didn't get that one. No sorry, more. sorry, I can wait, I can wait. Hey, uh, John, uh, have you been watching the Paris Masters tennis? No. Uh, I, don't no think, I, I don't think Nadal played in the, thir- in the first round. Really? Uh, I'll just check that. Uh, that's right. Uh, he's not playing until the second round, is he? <laughs> yep. He has a bye, John. <sighs> Hang on, actually. Uh, Azerbaijan might be in Europe. What a mistake. That was terrible. And, uh, poor, and appalling. Um, bad career move. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, yep. you're going to have to pull this round for it. Uh, for us, so I tell you what always works. Why don't you sing a poor rendition of some eighties rock ballad? I could do that, yeah. but do it quickly. I'll, I'll have to rush you. Uh, uh, never mind. Uh-huh. Hey, uh, remember that hip hop show we hosted? I do. Yeah. Uh, you and I did a rap. <laughs> Am I right? Oh, hang on. <laughs> I'm gonna have to get this right. You and I did a rap. Am I right? United Arab Emirates. So, did that go on too long? <laughs> Sorry to keep banging on. What? I just picked it up. And United I, Arab Emirates. Yep. Yeah, you and I did a rap. Did United a, a rap. I'm going to have rights. to throw a flag on that one, okay. Andy. <laughs> Fair call. I just picked it up and I ran with it. But I think I racked up quite a few puns. Though. Oh, it's still happening. That's it's still it. happening. I, Sorry. Did, I, was, I thought I was Sorry. living in a world where this wasn't happening Sorry. anymore. So no, it's done now. But, uh, b- boot on with the show. F*** you! <laughs> I wrote that over lunch today. <laughs> well, I don't want to put in my food. I can only apologise. I have to say, Andy, you have to credit the Indian government for their security operations regarding the president's Oh, back on that, are we? Right. (laughs) I mean, there is just no way to segue, Andy, from what monstrosity just happened. Okay. What human rights violation just occurred over the last three minutes. You talked about your balls, John. (laughs) His balls in a pair of green tights. That's true. I think I'm entitled to make a few puns. You're just returning fire. Yeah. <laughs> you have to credit the Indian government for their security operations. Uh, they really stop short of absolutely nothing to keep the president <laughs> safe. Uh, their interpretation of maximum security included removing coconuts in Mumbai that may have fallen on the president's head from trees. That was very wise, Andy. There is a history of assassination attempts from international falling fruit. Uh, who could forget when a pineapple tried to kill Lyndon Johnson? Uh, luckily, a secret serviceman dived in front of the pineapple and just headed it away. 
Also, I believe that Reagan was actually hit by a kiwi fruit, but luckily got him in the thigh and was not fatal. <laughs> so, um, thank you very much, India, for keeping 44 safe. That's right, and uh, John Wilkes Booth actually uh, held a kumquat at Abraham Lincoln, but uh, <laughs> he had coated it in lead and put it in a gun. That's right. That's right. <laughs> From India, it was on to Indonesia, Obama's childhood home, or to put it another way, somewhere he could go, back to his roots! <laughs> now... He took the time while there to visit the world's biggest mosque, presumably because he's just not sure he wants a second term in office. <laughs> Such a trip undoubtedly has a tangibly positive effect in improving relations with the Muslim world, but it's also giving more credit to aspects of the American media than they deserve or indeed can be trusted with. He even opened his speech over there with Assalamu Alaikum and continues, let me begin with a simple statement, Indonesia is part of me. And there were clearly radio hosts back in America screaming into their microphones, I knew it! <laughs> I knew They called me a racist, and while yes, as it happens, I am a racist, I have at least in this instance been proved right. Now, clearly, this, this trip to the Muslim world is a, a vital bridge-building exercise, especially at the moment. Bear in mind that there are some Americans that are having trouble differentiating between Muslims, of which there are hundreds of millions, and terrorists, of which there are hundreds. It's like, and you know, I think these numbers are <laughs> roughly to scale, it's like if people in the Muslim world were unable to distinguish between Americans and professional baseball players. <laughs> that would be ridiculous and offensive. Very, very few Americans are professional baseball players, and furthermore, it's worth noting that not all professional baseball players are actually American. <laughs> but they do tend to have American sympathies. Yes, that, that is true. <laughs> uh, David Cameron, he's been uh, jetting around Asia as well. Uh, he's been to China and told them uh, quite quietly uh, to smarten up their human rights uh, shtick. Uh, and he, he did this in a speech in a school, uh, which apparently wasn't broadcast on Chinese television, uh, strangely enough. Uh, and he had to be seen to do it, John, and um, I guess the Chinese knew that he had to be seen to do it, uh, uh -huh. and, you know, I, th I guess he was quite safe from their point of view. He's not the kind of, the kind of guy, David Cameron, to chain himself to some railings, start <laughs> shouting, free Tibet, and then rip open his jacket to reveal a T-shirt with the slogan, Chairman Mao was a tool on it. So um, I guess they could trust him. And uh, we've had a student riots here, and I can only imagine that uh, President Hu Jintao just tapped him on the shoulder as they uh, lined up for the G20 uh, lined up for the G20 meeting and said, call that a student protest. You want to try one of ours? <laughs> it's a... Uh it's actually not all been smooth sailing for uh, the First Lady on this tour either. She caused a major uh, controversy by shaking hands with a conservative Muslim information minister in Indonesia. Now, that might not sound earth-shatteringly scandalous at first, but the problem was that the, uh, th this violated the minister's pious claim that he avoids contact with women that are not related to him. And he actually blamed Michelle Obama, claiming that the touching was not his fault, saying, I tried to prevent... Uh, my, uh, from being touched my hands, uh, but Mrs. Michelle held her hands too far toward me, so we touched. <laughs> that's a very interesting interpretation of the greeting, as the, uh, the video of their meeting seems to fairly clearly show him smiling, eager to meet the First Lady, and clasping her hands with absolutely no hesitation <laughs> at all. And it turns out he's a very polarising figure in Indonesia, and uh, people there 
seem to be enjoying this chance to call him down from his hypocritical moral high horse. This is a man who, just last year, said that Indonesian sins were responsible for the earthquakes, tsunamis and other natural disasters that have recently struck them, uh, and then linked the destruction of those events to the country's involvement in the production of pornographic videos. He's also used his Twitter account to post jokes about AIDS patients. So... It's somehow comforting to know that there are not only arsehole politicians everywhere, <laughs> but also people waiting to laugh at them when they eventually, as I believe the saying goes, f*** themselves in the foot. <laughs> it's an old uh, ancient Greek expression, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> you were walking, walking in two worlds In the gardens of sunlight home Bad children on the phone Ladies and gentlemen, Barack Obama's 10-day post-election Asian sojourn is ended. It was a trip filled with high-level political intrigue. Colors of India oh. were on diplomatic display. Circumstance! <laughs> and the kind of citizen-of-the-world theatrics that have so endeared the president to his critics. Indonesia, bagian dari diri saya. Pulang kampung nih. Ask for his Indonesian birth certificate. <laughs> He's actually from Hawaii. He's tricking you. <laughs> it's what he does to become president of your land. <laughs> but of course, now, Mr. Popular International Fancy Pants, I am the living embodiment of the American dream. He's back home in America. Oh, look at that. His own helicopter. Woo! <laughs> Looks like someone thinks he's too good to split a fare with another passenger who's also headed to the downtown D.C. area. <laughs> well, I, I can't wait to hear about his trip. I bet he thinks he hit a home run. Instead of hitting home runs, sometimes we're going to hit singles. But they're really important singles. <laughs> at, least he's, at least he's not using cricket references. He seems sad. Mr. President, if you're not going to blow your own trumpet, what's everyone else going to do to your trumpet? Oh my God, Mr. President, hide your trumpet! President Obama's Asia trip was a total disaster. His economic view somewhat rejected. No resolution with China over their currency valuation. He failed to reach a free trade agreement with South Korea. No cooling of tensions between India and Pakistan. Refused to condemn the global jihad. A tough meeting with the German chancellor. He's lost his mojo. This is a troubled time in America. Why is he going on this long trip? This was an extraordinarily expensive trip. Another chapter in the great American apology tour. What did he get besides really nice photo ops. Why did he go? And when he went, why did he f*** it up so badly? <laughs> I haven't seen a trip, I haven't seen a trip reviewed this badly since the Griswolds went to Vegas. <laughs> Hey, David Pakman here, host of The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. 
If you're like me, you're a regular listener of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Jay Tomlinson. If you like that, I invite you to check out my show, The David Pakman Show. Not only will you hear the best of the left, but you'll also hear some of the worst of the right, including some of the craziest bigots and racists around. But don't worry, I don't agree with them. Check out davidpakman.com, check out our show, continue listening to Best of the Left podcast, and even consider becoming a member of The David Pakman Show, all at davidpakman.com. This week marked the opening salvo in a war over the budget likely to dominate the agenda of politicians and pundits for months, if not years. The leaders of a bipartisan commission appointed by the president offer a far-reaching and controversial plan. They go after fundamental tax reform, which would raise revenues but also make the tax code much better, and they basically spread the cost of this plan across the entire budget. First off, this wasn't a report from the president's bipartisan fiscal panel. That needs 14 of its eight. 18 members to agree, and they don't. This is just a draft opened up for debate by its co-chairs, Republican Alan Simpson and Democrat Erskine Bowles. So the headlines, like those in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal referring to the panel, are wrong. The panel ain't talking. Meanwhile, a Christian Science Monitor headline read, quote, a bipartisan and reality-based way to cut taxes and reduce the deficit. Really? If only. After all, according to Congressman Eric Cantor, our government has spent more money in the past two years than in the previous 200 combined. Actually, that's not true at all. In fact, much of what politicians have said about our deficit and national debt is decidedly not reality-based. PolitiFact.com reporter and researcher Angie Drobnik-Hollin has found no shortage of half-truths and flat-out falsehoods. Angie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, start with that statement by Eric Cantor, the Republican from Virginia. Here he is on The Daily Show in October. What you've seen is a, a crowd that has taken advantage of a crisis back in late 08, early 09 and spent more money than this country has spent in the last 200 years combined in the two years mm -hmm. since. Just how false is that statement? Could you break it down? Well, we gave that statement our worst rating, which is pants on fire. We went to the historical tables that the government produces on debt and started adding up the years. We found the debt was quite significant for 2009 and 2010, about $7.2 trillion. But then we started adding up the years before that, and when we added up 2008, 2007, and 2006, we had already exceeded the number of those past two years. So there is just no way that this statement was correct, and we gave it our worst rating of pants on fire. No resemblance to reality at all. No, the debt situation is significant. But it's not that bad. <laughs> Another Virginia congressman, Democrat Bobby Scott, said in a written statement, quote, If all of the Bush-era tax cuts expire on schedule, the budget will be close to being balanced in four years. That sounds almost unbelievable. Hmm? We rated that one false. And the reason it's false is if you let all of the Bush tax cuts expire, you do reduce the deficit very significantly. But it's still not balanced. You basically get it back to what's considered more reasonable levels of debt. What about this four-year time span? No, it's not correct. If you get rid of all the Bush-era tax cuts, you still have deficits pretty much as far as the eye can see. Now, again, much smaller. But no, it still wouldn't be balanced. 
On election night, Wisconsin Republican Paul Ryan, who will be the chairman of the House Budget Committee, he made an interesting assertion. The spending bills that you've signed into law, the domestic discretionary spending has been increased by 84%. We rated this one barely true. What we found was that there was a spike between 2008 and 2010, the past two years. That spike in 2009 was because of the stimulus. Now, to get to that 84% increase... Paul Ryan counts the stimulus, but if you look at the 2010 discretionary spending, it's only about 24% over 2008. That's why we rated it barely true. Mm -hmm. The stimulus was a one-time injection. It does not keep increasing the budget as the years go forward. Let me ask you about one more. This one was written in an op-ed by former U.S. Senator George Allen. He claimed that the national debt is currently $6 trillion more than when Obama was sworn into office. It's actually only about $3 trillion right now. What's interesting is that if Obama serves his whole term, then it would reach $6 trillion, but not right now. So we rated this one false. Is there one that I've left out that you consider to be a red-hot whopper? You know, one thing that we hear regularly are kind of statements that if you eliminated all the foreign aid, you could fix the deficit. If you got rid of the waste, fraud, and abuse, you could fix the deficit. Well, the deficit is actually too significant for that sort of thing. Foreign aid is a relatively small percentage of the budget. Earmarks are less than 2%. To really get the budget under control, you need to look at three of the biggest spending categories, defense, Medicare, and Social Security. The people who really study this and who are nonpartisan and aren't running for office say that we really need spending cuts and tax increases, that the scale is just too large to do it without both. You write about budget and deficit-related issues quite a lot. Is it, do you think, that the math and the numbers tend to trip people up, or are we talking willful deception in a number of cases? I think that the federal budget is very complicated, and it's easy to get things wrong. I can't believe you're not willing to concede that some of these people are just lying. <laughs> you know, uh, pants on fire is our worst rating, and it kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> Angie, thank you very much. Thanks. Angie Dropnik Holin is a reporter and researcher for PolitiFact. You tell me lies, lies, lies. Sweet little lies. When I can't unbear the truth You tell me lies, lies, lies Sweet little lies Help me make them all come true Tell me that the rain won't fall today Tell me that the tax man lost his way Now, the Deficit Commission, I do think, is a little bit different, because this is sort of like a big Megillah. Megillah? Uh, Megillah. That's a, that's a technical term. And I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't think that is. That's not a word. That's did a you go to the Kennedy School? I, no. Neither did I, but I, I, um, <laughs> I believe it's a technical term. So, so this is Deficit Commission. Uh-huh. Obama put this together when Congress refused to put one in the law. That should be legally obligated to vote on its recommendations. Okay. So Obama creates one on his own accord, and 
the rules that he set up for it mm-hmm. was that it would be fully bipartisan, but you need two thirds vote. Uh, I mean, it's fourteen out of eighteen commissioners. You need fourteen out of eighteen other commissioners to agree to whatever they propose for the Congress to then consider it. Okay. And in all likelihood, they will not reach that threshold <laughs> because anything that they do that has any remote seriousness to it will involve some tax increases somewhere. Uh-huh. And few Republicans on that commission are going to agree to that. So what the two co-chairs just did, from what I can understand, from what the reports have been made, if you take what reports on the level. Okay. They're supposed to come up with their recommendations as a full committee by the 1st of December. So it's a few weeks away. All right. The two commissioners, Alan Simpson and Erskine Bowles, they show up with their own draft. Okay. Which is basically, let's piss everybody off. <laughs> let's do nothing that nobody wants. Awesome. <laughs> that does sound good. And, and they, this is the one Democrat and one Republican? Right. And that's right. what they came up with? Right. Right. All right. Uh, and they show it to all the commissioners. And they go, none of the commissioners get behind it. Like, eh, no more of that. That sounds too good. <laughs> and and really someone said to the to the two of them, you know, this is just going to leak out. So maybe you should just go hold a press conference after we're done and re- give it to everybody. Uh-huh. And they go, okay. So the White House doesn't know that this is happening. Awesome. And, and the so what you're saying is, is Stimkin Bowles, they were like drunk on scotch. <laughs> and they just like got drunk together and they're like, let's do this. It'll be so funny. That's what I think. Okay. All right. So I don't know with that theory. Some people think this is more calculated on their part to put something that is intentionally so awful that whatever they do next will seem better, it, uh, relatively speaking, but it would still suck. Clever. I personally don't believe they're that smart. I think, they, I think they're a little... I'm just going with drunk on scotch. I, I really. It, it's sort of John McCain esque. You right. know, Sarah Palin, what the hell? You yeah. know? <laughs> Let's do this. Look at all. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's better for me. And you, you, you read some of the commentary on it. You can certainly read things from, from ideological people mm-hmm. who might say things you'd expect. You sure. know, liberals don't like the cuts in Social Security, don't like the cuts in spending. There are conservatives that don't like the. the, the, the that increases in taxes. Um, there are supposed centrists that like it because it seems centrist. You know, like, it, if they okay. want, they want to pretend they're not ideological. You know, give it up, buddy. You're being just as blindly knee jerk as anybody else is. Sure. This piss up the left and the right. It must be good. Yay! But there are some people who I would actually call non ideological. Okay. Uh, who are making very searing critiques of it? Uh, for example, uh, Kevin Drum. Um, who some might say is uh, left of center, but okay. I would, but I think to call him um, orthodox liberal is wildly off the mark. Okay, um, said, look, anyone knows if you look at the actual long-term budget projections, and the the only thing that's really seriously impacting our fiscal stability is healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. It's not Social Security. Right. It's not discretionary spending. You know, it's not the National Weather Service, as Obama <laughs> mentioned earlier. Uh, it's healthcare, service. <laughs> uh, and I'm a, I don't know if Kevin said this, but I'm saying this. You know, we just did healthcare reform, <laughs> right? Which is intended to control costs, right. and there are debates still over because it's all projection, right? So people have different projections over what how successful it will be, and a lot of it's going to depend on how well you implement it. Mm-hmm. So no one can say for absolute certainty what is going to happen with it, but it's. It's the only serious attempt that we have done <laughs> to control healthcare costs in 
ever. Ever. <laughs> yeah. And to the extent that it works or doesn't work well, you you have a framework that you work with and you improve it as you go mm-hmm. along. Like that's that's all you can do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and what Simpson and Bowles did was do a bunch of stuff on a bunch of other issues. I mean, they cut Social Security while explicitly saying this is not about reducing the deficit. What? <laughs> they were, no, they were drunk. Sorry. And like, their healthcare section is like two lines with like no details at all. Like, we're going to cut some money here. <laughs> I mean, it's an, it's an unserious proposal. Interesting. And another interesting take was from a guy named Stan Collender, who's not as well known. Um, he's a longtime budget expert in Washington, D.C. He used to be affiliated with... Uh, National Journal, uh, and also the private consulting group, and now he blogs at a site called Capital Gains and Games, and he said, this just doesn't add up at all, These, this, on a number of fronts, <laughs> but one example in particular, he said, they are saying we should cut the federal workforce. Okay. Um, now, typically, when you cut the federal workforce, it means things still need to get done, <laughs> That's really unspecific. Like. Well, it's, it's all very unspecific. Okay, all right. Um, but usually if you're going to cut the federal workforce in some area, you would then outsource to private contractors to pick up the slack in some way. Okay. But these guys say cut the federal workforce and cut, and just, yeah. cut the, the contracting. Awesome. And, and freeze wages. Okay. Which, as he said, will mean that your more experienced and skilled workers will leave. leave. <laughs> right. And so you'll then replace them with less skilled, less experienced workers, uh-huh, uh-huh. which means your productivity is going to go down. Right. So you're going to have a smaller workforce that is less productive, and you're pursuing this because it result in savings? No. <laughs> no. It's going to be a bunch of people walking around the office going, we're paper clips. <laughs> Fuck. I don't know how to do any of this shit. I mean, haven't you worked in an office where that's kind of happened and it's well, just an absolute nightmare? <laughs> I've been in a restaurant where they're short-staffed, you know? Right. You know, the waiter who has to work six tables doesn't work better because there's less wait staff. Mm-mm. That's not what happens. Just more plates get broken. Yep. So, but that's the quality of analysis. Awesome. Of this paper. It's just sort of like this oddly centrist wish list without any attempt to make the dots connect. So I do think this proposal, as it stands, is is dead on arrival, but it still leaves open the question, you know, what might get salvaged in all of this? Um, I mean, there's a furious push from from my group, Campaign for America's Future, and the, our broader strength and Social Security coalition to make sure that Social Security doesn't, you know, become a scapegoat in all of this, because right. by their own admission, it's nothing to do with the deficit. I mean, Social Security right. is separately financed. Right. Uh, now they're they're arguing that it's not fiscally sound, and we're arguing that it is. Um, I just can't see anything happening with Social Security. With there's so many boomers out there that will just the boomers will crush you with their numbers. Well, there's a sense from the White House that I mean, I mean, I mean, most of the people in our coalition would say yes, there is a minor problem with the financing. Mm-hmm. So if you if According to current projections oh, Social for Social Security, okay. if you literally did nothing at all, uh-huh. at, when you hit 20, the year 2037, instead of paying out 100% of your expected benefits, you would get 75%, mm-hmm. which is not going bankrupt. It's not the whole thing collapsing. It's it means you just get less than what you're owed. Right. It's not good. Not good. But it's not, you know, 
it's not a Ponzi scheme, as <laughs> as several Republicans running for office I, yeah, I know. were calling it. Yeah. Um, it just means you got to adjust things a because little bit. Because they had heard the word Ponzi scheme <laughs> and knew it was bad. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> I heard about that. That's bad. So you could handle that uh, pre- almost completely through additional revenue. You don't have to. You don't have to cut benefits. Right. You can say because well, right now the payroll tax. There's a payroll tax that we all pay yep. when you work. But your income is only taxed up to about $100,000. So if you make more than $100,000, mm-hmm. that money's not taxed. Gotcha. So you could lift that cap, either in part or in full, and then mm-hmm. get more revenue. And that would either completely or largely solve that that minor issue. But why should people who make a lot of money pay things? <laughs> Bill. People who make less money should buy things. And people who don't make a lo- or make lots of money... Should live on double stuff Oreos. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Like when we have gift bags, you know, for our Oscars, it's like full of double stuff. So the president has said we should tweak this in a minor way. And he has largely pushed the notion of raising the the tax cap and not talk about benefit cuts. But you get the sense that maybe he would entertain something. Okay. Uh, And, but I, I doubt he would do anything as drastic as what. Simpson and Bowles have just proposed, but you know, I don't. But I'm, he's not drunk. He's, he's not drunk. Uh, I also speak for the president, so I don't know. But I mean, there's certainly, it's certainly a live issue what's going to happen there exactly. Okay. And I, I think the president is interested in doing something on it to say that he has done something that was not traditionally liberal. Okay. To show that he's, uh, I mean, I think, I think it's part a sincere policy step in this party if you might be wrong in it mm-hmm. um but also part to say i don't want to do just things that make you know liberals happy i also want to show the middle of the country that i'm thinking right. broader than that for better or for worse uh and but that's obviously a very hot political topic polling shows that cutting social security benefits is probably one of the worst things you could do politically right. so if he goes down that path he's taking a very serious political risk then why do republicans want to do it well republicans you know Want to be crafty about it? You know, you know the Republicans have always pushed <laughs> pushed privatization. So yeah, they, they put this fantasy you know, vision that and again, what would have happened if Bush had made the Social Security um, private and then the what, what and it crashed? What, <laughs> what would have happened? Would I mean, I have the been, idea, the that idea, would have been awesome. <laughs> I mean, the idea came out in the nineties when Wall Street was going gangbusters. Say, yeah. hey, why are you putting your money with the government when it could make zillions with Wall Street? So we'll cut your Social Security benefits. Oh, my God. You'll take a chunk of your income and put it in the stock market, and, and then you'll have lots of doubles of Oreos. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's when when the market crashed, it's hard to make that argument anymore. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in some sense, Simpson and Bowles are being less disingenuous. They're just saying, we want to cut your benefits. They're not, <laughs> they're not pretending. Just straight out. They're like, you know what? <laughs> Screw you, <laughs> and screw your old people. <laughs> and what's sort of idiotic about this is, the art, the argument basically is, if we do nothing, we have to cut your benefits. No. So let's cut your benefits. <laughs> basically what we're saying is, we're going to cut your benefits. <laughs> Alrighty then. Let, no. I took it all for granted, but how was I to know?
Barack Obama keeps pushing a Republican agenda. Since day one, he's been exaggerating the problem of the debt and the deficit. And since day one, he's been fueling irrational fears about the bankruptcy of Social Security and Medicare. He didn't need to impanel this commission on Social Security and Medicare in the first place, and he didn't need to appoint Alan Simpson and Erskine Bowles to head it up. Simpson has a long record of hostility toward the social safety net, and Bowles yet another Clinton retread as a triangulator from way back. It's not a surprise, then, that Simpson and Bowles have come up with some drastic proposals to slash the social safety net. If those proposals or anything like them become law, you'll be working longer before you possibly can get Social Security. And if you manage to live long enough to qualify for it, you'll be receiving punier benefits than your parents did. Simpson and Bowles also came out for lowering the income tax rate on the richest Americans by one-third and corporate income taxes by a quarter. We didn't need a Democratic president to flatten the progressive income tax in America, and we sure didn't need a Democratic president to go after Social Security. But we got one. Sometimes I don't know which way to go. Sometimes I can't tell. I'm but a sister's aware because I'm walking on a high wire. High wire. So let's presuppose for a moment that you actually enjoyed this show. Now, if that's true, please consider supporting it with a $5 monthly membership. I actually quit my job as a climate activist to pursue this show full-time because this is where I felt like my talents could best be put to use and I could have the biggest impact on the world. But I really need your support to keep going. I produce 10 shows a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule posting shows at least every third day. So if all that is worth 5 bucks a month or as little as $55, a year, a little discount for you, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. Members even receive bonus audio and video content on top of the rest that doesn't make it into the final cut of the show. So please, again, check out the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. What gives? Should retirement age get moved back? Should you get fewer health care benefits? It's got to come from somewhere. Tonight, the folks who were asked by the president to find where to cut are out with their answers. You may remember that a while back, Republicans in Congress proposed setting up a blue ribbon commission to work on the big picture financial issues facing our country. Are we going broke? How do we keep ourselves from going broke? What do we need to do in the long run to get ourselves to get the country back into financial health? Republicans proposed a commission to try to get to answers for those questions. Then when President Obama endorsed that idea, all of those Republicans decided they were all of a sudden against it. This law failed by seven votes when seven Republicans who had co-sponsored the bill had co-sponsored the idea suddenly walked away from their own proposal after I endorsed it. So they, they make a proposal, they sign on to the bill, I say, great, good idea. I turn around, <laughs> they're gone. What happened? What happened? After Republicans abandoned that 
idea, their own idea, President Obama decided to go ahead and form this commission himself. It is a bipartisan thing. It is headed up by respected elder statesmen from both parties. And it is supposed to look at the big picture of, honestly, everything that the government does. Everything we do that spends money or takes in money and how we can get those things to even out. Nobody knew the commission was going to release its preliminary findings today. And it was big red banner breaking news everywhere when it happened. Such a huge deal. It was a surprise. And oh, by the way, the president is in freaking South Korea right now. Maybe this is not a coincidence. Um, what you're seeing here is just scratching the surface of all of the politicians, left, right, and center, who responded to the commission's findings today by saying, and I paraphrase, oh no, 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 no. Given that this is a presidential commission, they have just done the president a huge favor by having him not here, not in the country when their findings came out. Because as expected, the preliminary recommendations from this group are toxic. Cut Social Security benefits, delay everybody's retirement, cut Medicare, cut out a bunch of really popular tax breaks that lots of middle class people use, lower the tax rate for, ri for rich people and for corporations. There are individual things that are recommended here that individual slices of the electorate or individual groups, interest groups might be able to get behind. But politically speaking, all in all, this is like a, a toxic burrito, double the toxic with toxic sauce and a side of toxic. A fact that did not escape the folks who served it up today. We have harpooned every whale in the ocean and some of the minnows. And no one has ever done that before. I we told will be on a witness protection program when this is over, so look us up. Now look, maybe some of what they are suggesting will happen. It'll get implemented. But if you were president of the United States and your commission just recommended this litany of stuff... You, too, would probably want to be 6,941 miles away from the White House when these findings came out. Here's one thing, though, that before this year would have been considered just another of the political toxins in these recommendations. But this year, it's legitimately really interesting. In order to get the country's financial house in order, one of the things these elder statesmen recommend is that we cut the country's defense budget. <gasps> Defense. This is one of those things that's been so politically off limits for so long in American politics that it's almost impossible to believe they put it down on paper or PowerPoint or whatever. Here's defense spending under uh, Ronald Reagan. Up, 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 up. Here's defense spending under the first President Bush. Up a bit and then down a bit and then naturally right back up again. Uh, during the Clinton administration, defense spending actually did go down a teeny, 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 tiny little bit before it started coming back up. Then under George W. Bush, up, 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 way up. And that way up trend has continued. So look at that continued so far under President Obama. More than half of all of this country's discretionary spending is this. More than half the discretionary spending, more than half of the things we are not statutorily required to spend, but that we get to decide about each year, more than half, a majority of what we spend. This is it. We as a country spend as much on defense as the rest of the world spends on defense combined. And yes, that includes China. But the Republican secretary of all of that money, Bob Gates, who President Obama held over from George Bush's second term, he keeps giving speeches about how the Pentagon cannot keep having budgets this big. Last month, 57 members of the House and Senate wrote to this commission of elder statesmen thing saying, if you guys are going to be talking about how to get our financial house in order, you really have to consider defense. Everybody billed that as a bipartisan letter, but honestly, you want to know who the Republicans were who signed on to it? 
There was a uh, Republican Congressman Ron Paul of Texas, and uh, Ron Paul, also Ron Paul, and Ron Paul. Yeah, that's it. But they did get Ron Paul. Uh, This is the hard part. Even as defense spending has completely busted the budget for decades now, Republican attacks on anyone who would propose even flattening defense spending, even slowing the rate of increase, let alone cutting it, is such a finely honed attack now through years and years and years of repetition. John Kerry and the liberals in Congress voted to slash America's intelligence operations. Cuts so deep they would have weakened America's defenses. Leaders of the Democrat minority voted consistently to cut intelligence spending throughout the 1990s as they voted to uh, slash defense spending. And that anti-defense, anti-intelligence philosophy lives on in one of the Democratic alternatives that we have before us today. When Senator Kerry first entered the Senate, he sought to cancel the very weapon systems that are critical to winning the war on terrorism and maintaining our military strength. If Democrats regain control, you can count on them to slash defense spending to pay for wasteful Washington spending. Today, a senior congressional Democrat proposed cutting defense spending by a quarter. Slashing slashing defense while our troops are at war. The Democrats' answer to the challenges we face is to lower our defenses and raise our taxes. Regardless of the utility of any particular part of defense spending each year, for essentially my entire life, Republicans have reflexively attacked anybody who doesn't support big increases in defense funding every year. To infinity and beyond, there's no ceiling. What's different this year, what might be the one interesting and potentially constructive thing that results from the conservative movement's partial takeover of the Republican Party this year, is that it might not be just Ron Paul who's willing to talk about this now. There is now a split in the Republican Party between those who say defense spending is untouchable and those who at least say they're willing to look at maybe cutting it. This is new. They say nothing in politics is ever new. This is new. This is something new under the sun at least in my lifetime. Republicans, as a unified bloc, have always attacked Democrats for any proposals to cut defense. They have attacked Democrats for wanting to cut defense even when Democrats haven't proposed cutting defense because they've just liked the sound of that attack so much. But this year, for the first time, Republicans are not unified on that anymore. There is something new under the sun. Senator-elect Rand Paul, the son of Ron Paul. Senator-elect Mark Kirk of Illinois. Senator-elect Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania. Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma. Senator Johnny Isaacson. Senator Bob Corker. Governor Mitch Daniels. Congressman Paul Ryan. All of these Republicans have suggested in varying degrees in recent weeks that cuts in defense can be on the table. Of course, lots of other Republicans are still taking the same old line. Would you cut defense across the board as well as domestic spending? No, you do, you do not cut defense. Just so I understand what you were just trying to tell Chris. Do you believe that defense spending is discretionary spending? No, I think that what you can, you have to fund the <laughs> efforts of the military, and we all know that. We don't even get a choice about it. I don't even acknowledge that it's discretionary. She says we all know that. Can't, put, can't cut defense, can't do it. But maybe not anymore. You know, the idea that defense could actually come down in terms of what we spend on it every year, that has been derided by the right as a pot-smoking, dirty, hippie pipe dream for most of my lifetime. Is it possible that that might change this year? That this year it might actually happen?
Hi, my name is Nick from California, and I'm calling in regards to some comments on the education show. Uh, usually I agree with uh, Cenk Uger from the Young Turks about almost everything. I didn't quite agree with him, though, on some of the comments he made, especially about uh, sort of implying that standardized test scores were really a good way to um, uh, measure teacher effectiveness. Now, I'm not saying he directly said that, but that was sort of him and his uh, uh, co-host there were sort of indicating that. And they're one metric, but uh, a reading and math test um, is not a good way to measure teaching effectiveness overall. Um, there are stories of a, of a teacher who goes from a well-funded school to an inner-city school, and uh, they're teaching the same grade, and those test scores go to the floor. Um, when they used to be get some of the highest test scores around, um, the same teacher using the same methods. So um, you know the, 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 there are a lot of things that influence it besides teachers. Another thing could be that uh, they mentioned that one teacher from the same school teaching the same grade got consistently higher scores than another uh, teacher teaching the same grade teaching the same kind of students. Um, you know what that may be? Uh, that may be that the other teacher is teaching more to the test and teaching better test skills rather than educating our students. I'm not against standardized tests, but they can't be the only metric. I do think we need to hold teachers accountable, but I think that there need to be uh, other ways besides just standardized tests. And one other thing that he actually said in a different clip is I, I do agree that we need to make sure that our um, that our students strive for excellence. The only way to do that is to have parents involved, but just simply telling your students to get straight A's is not feasible. Uh, st not all students can get straight A's. And the only way to do that is to foster a, a love of learning with your children, to want to learn yourself by being involved in education and wanting to learn new things about the world and being fascinated by that and inspiring your children to want to learn and do well in school. But simply telling them they must get straight A's is not very good advice. Um, that's my comments as an educator. I have a lot more, but clearly I have to keep this short. Uh, thanks a lot for your show. I really appreciate it, and I'm grateful for the call online. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who left a message on the voicemail line to be played on the show. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, I have a story to tell today, and here's the background information, very important background information. I have very few t-shirts. You know, I moved recently, I was traveling light, yada yada. I have like single digits of t-shirts, nine t-shirts, somewhere in that neighborhood, and about five of them, more than half of the t-shirts I own, say Best of the Left on them with a Best of the Left logo because, you know, someone has to advertise, right? I mean, no one else is going to do it, so I walk around with uh, with my show on my chest and um, and I've thought to myself for several months now since I got these shirts that at some point somehow somewhere I'm going to be recognized based on the show I mean statistically I have to run into a listener eventually I had no idea when it would happen but I've, I've been telling people since I got those shirts that's when I'll really feel like I've turned a corner I, I will I will feel as though I've arrived when someone sees my shirt and says, hey, I listen to that show, and I'll say, hey, I make that show, and then we'll have a pleasant conversation, and, uh, and, and everyone will feel good about it. So that's the background information you needed to know. Uh, the next piece of information you need is that a couple of days ago, I went to a, a book signing. You know, author was in town, and uh, they were signing books, and, and so on and so forth. I went to the signing, bought myself a book, waited in line for several hours, and, uh, and and got up to the front, 
and uh, and was you know said hello and gave the book over to be signed and the author said yes just a pleasantry i think so asked me what my shirt said he saw that it said something he said, oh what, what's your shirt say and i said oh this is uh, this is my show it's called the best of the left and he said well i listen to the best of the left and i said i think something to the effect of bullshit and he said no i i really do and then he began to quote to me my advertisement asking people to become members he started telling me about how I used to work in an environmental nonprofit and how now I've quit and I don't do this job full time. And I said, holy shit, you really do. I said, well, that's excellent. Well, I'm Jay and I make the show. And he said, oh, excellent. So it was a perfectly pleasant exchange between two titans of our respective mediums. Uh, you know, one might think we were on equal footing at that moment, uh, you know, mutual fans, so to speak. Uh, but this is where we diverge because uh, although I guess if it had occurred to, me, to him, he could have asked for me to you know, write a blurb or something for his next book, whatever project he may have in the works. Uh, he did not ask for that. Um, I, did, I don't take offense to that. But on the other hand, I did have the wherewithal to pull out my phone and quickly record an endorsement from him for the show. This is David Sedaris, and I often listen to the Best of the Left podcast and enjoy it. <laughs> to the point. Very good. So many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with the works of David Sedaris. If you're not, obviously, I recommend you check him out. I've been a fan for many years, uh, and so it's great to have him on board as a listener and, and was a unexpected to say the least that he would be the first person to uh, basically recognize me based on my t-shirt. So that was uh, a pleasant surprise. Now, considering that it's the holidays, I will say this about his work, and this is absolutely true. Uh, every year I have, you know, as many people do, kind of a compilation of things that I like to listen to during the holiday season, kind of get me in the spirit, you know, my personal collection of music I like, and and I have a couple of other things too, you know, spoken word uh, stories and, and, and various things, one of which is a story uh, by David Starris, short story found in his book, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim, entitled Six to Eight Black Men, and it's one of my favorite stories of his, and since it's a holiday story, I, uh, I go back and I listen to it each year, uh, and so since it's the holidays now, if you're going to go check out something from David Sedaris, uh, that is my recommendation. If you're, if you're only going to hear one thing, check out Six to Eight Black Men. And now the, the last thing I'll say about this is that uh, when he does his book tours, he asks something of his audience. Uh, you, you know, for, for each tour he does, he'd ask a different question. What he was asking this time was uh, basically soliciting jokes. He wanted people to tell him jokes. And so I was entirely prepared to tell jokes. I had two saved up. Um, and when I say saved up, I mean they're literally the only two jokes I know. They're the only two that I can memorize. For some reason, all the others just slip right out, and I can't I can't pull them up uh, when called upon. But the entire conversation that while I was there for a couple of minutes was derailed by the fact that he's a listener of the show, and so I didn't have a chance to tell my jokes. So I need all of you to indulge me for a moment. Because I got to tell David my joke, uh, so and I have two, but only one's family friendly. So, uh, so I'll tell the family friendly one. So there's a moth, 
Uh, he's feeling he's really depressed, feeling down in the dumps. Uh, and so he goes into a dentist office. He's kind of he's led into the exam room and he begins talking to the dentist, explaining all of his, you know, troubles and heartache that's causing all his mental anguish. And the dentist, you know, listens patiently. And uh, and, and then when the moth finishes, he, he shows some sympathy, but then has to ask. But why, you know, I'm a dentist. Why would you come to me with these sorts of problems? And the moth replies, well, your light was on. No, no, no. I, no, it's okay. I'll, I'll wait. I'm assuming you're still laughing at that. So, okay. So that, that's the, my family-friendly joke. I had another one, less family-friendly, I won't tell on the show. Uh, but, uh, but David, I did send you an email through the publicist. Hopefully you will get that uh if you don't, uh, drop me a line. I will let you know my uh, not safe for work joke. Now, I just want to thank a couple of members who helped make the show possible. Uh, Janet H. signed up for a membership back on uh, July 3rd and signed up for a full year in advance. And another uh, another yearly member, uh, a special listener, Carrie W., signed up on April 18th. And Carrie, I don't know when he found the show, but he emailed the show uh, you know, marking in time forever that he has been listening since at least April of 2006, meaning that he had found the show within about three months of its inception and has been uh, listening ever since. So uh, always good to hear from the you know really, really old school listeners. And when I saw his name on the membership list, I knew I had to give a special thanks to Carrie W. from Canada. Now, of course... Everyone can support the show just by telling all your friends and family and neighbors about it. Stay tuned into the show and help spread the word online by following us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend